0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Human-Centered Security. Today, I have with me Jason Telner and Allie Cuthbertson. They are both from IBM. Jason is a senior user researcher within IBM's CIO and data analytics team. He has over a decade of experience working within the field of user research, and at IBM, Jason's focus has been on improving the user experience of employee support applications, things like chatbots and web support and voice interface support. Allie is the Technical Vitality Developmental Manager and CIO Design Program Manager at IBM. She brings over 20 years of seasoned expertise navigating software and hardware engineering. She has become somewhat of a Indiana Jones of life sciences and the user experience, talent management, vitality optimization, security protocols, AI advancement, data analytics, scientific exploration, and cutting-edge cloud technologies. And throughout the interview, Jason and Allie are going to be referencing a project they worked on together to help develop and foster a consistent process for integrating UX and security into an agile development process for the teams at IBM. As a result of their work, they developed a set of principles and best practices. So as you listen in, Keep in mind that this is the project that they're referencing. They presented some of their research and recommendations at the 2023 UXPA presentation called How to Balance a Strong User Experience with Enhanced Security Within an Agile Framework, Lessons Learned and Best Practices. So with that, welcome Allie and Jason. So I'm gonna start with Jason first. What led you into the security user experience space?
1: Yeah, so glad that you're asking me that. It really stemmed from a project that I worked on, and the project uh, was around educating other practitioners at IBM around best practices in user experience, um, agile methodologies, and there was a security component that was integrated uh, into that training that we had. So the training involved coaching, it involved um, a website that we created uh, where IBMers could read about the different practices. So these were IBMers who were not really cognizant of these methods and even what UX was. So some had maybe had some awareness of them and others you know, had no awareness of them, or maybe some you know, knew what they were, but they never actually used them in a project or in their project teams or squads. So the whole idea was we wanted to make them more familiar with this. Um, how Agile works as a, as a development process, how user experience is integrated into that process, so where do you actually do UX, and then where does security fall within that whole framework? Um, and that was really you know the project that, that I worked on, is how do you integrate UX and security into your development process, and when do you do it um, in, in the process? Um, how does it fall into the framework? What are the best practices in doing it? Why is it important, I think, is really kind of the key that they understand that you know if you if you don't do it or if you wait too long to do it, what are the consequences of not doing it on your product that you're going to release? So how your product is going to be a lot better. So that was really um, kind of got me into this into this area, and you know looking at the best practices. And then we actually uh, gave a whole paper on it um, at a UX conference on UX and security and sort of what are the best practices around that and and how do you integrate that into into Agile.
0: Yeah. And I, I know we're gonna talk about this project in just a few minutes, so I'll kind of put a pin in it for now, but really interested in, in learning more about that. I, I'm sure folks, as they were listening to you, were like, well, what are the answers? Where do you integrate this into the process? Where does security come into play? So excited to talk about that in just a moment. Allie, um, what led you into the security user experience space? You have you know a ton of different experiences in, in different domains. So curious how you got into security UX.
2: Thank you for the question. And thank you for uh, having us here today. This is very exciting. Um, So I first got interested in UX, I think, before it was called UX. There you go, dated myself. But back in the 90s, I worked for a software company that was trying to solve the problem of interface testing. And we were trying to improve usability and security across the uh, native platforms, Um, different native platforms, like. those that remember the MVS, CMS, native Unix, uh, some of the early Apple uh, interfaces and the uh, Windows interfaces at the time. And I became fascinated by the complexity of this problem where UX and security came together. And one of the projects I had the opportunity to work on in that moment was automating the interface testing across the multiple... Uh, native platforms, and I was able to uh, come up with a methodology called Through the Looking Glass, and I presented it across the U.S. at different conferences. I think it was like early 2000s. And so if you fast forward to now, I'm still passionate about this space and, and these technologies and helping people and teams advance their goals. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, for, thanks to both
0: of you for sharing. So you, you worked on a project at IBM to help improve cross collaboration and standardized best practices. So this is what uh, Jason was alluding to earlier. A portion of that included collaboration around improving the security user experience. So maybe, uh, again, I'll, I'll have Jason start us off. You can give us a little bit of background on kind of expand on what you were talking about before, the objectives of the project. And and what did you learn from that experience? What sort of takeaways do you have for people in in user experience, UX designers, UX researchers, people on UX teams?
1: So I think some of the important lessons are, first of all, consistency. I mean, if you're you're dealing with a large enterprise company like IBM, you wanna have teams have a consistent process how they're integrating uh, security into their process and also UX. And the other key, um, I guess, insight that I learned is you want to do it early on uh, before you you release your projects. You really want to do it at the start of the project. You also want to start to consider, you know, what are sort of the UX considerations uh, before you start any sort of development work. You want to kind of figure out what those requirements are. Um, and that's, you know, you want to actually have that in your backlog. So when you go through, you know, an agile process, you're, you're drafting what we call stories, which are kind of like, you know, chunks of work that different team members are going to be working on. So you want to ensure that you have those security work items built in, you know, right from the start so that they're, they're considered all through, you know, your product cycle, your whole design cycle. Um, and I, I think that's really the main insight. If you do it too late, you know, you may have to reswizzle things or even break your design and start over. So it's really inconvenient to do it, to do it later on. Um, especially for your, even for your user, like you want to see what some of those pain points are and really important to do that research up front and narrow down those, those requirements. So I think those were the two biggest insights. Also just to have a consistent process across teams. Like I said before, um, you want to make sure everyone's kind of working in the same way and and integrating it in the same way. Um, So you have consistency across your company and how your teams work, you know, ingraining it in the culture, I think is really important so that there's a culture of, of how security is going to be uh, infused in your, in your agile process. So you're almost like creating a culture and hopefully you're ingraining those habits and teams, you know, will adopt those in, in their practices. So. It's really, it's not easy to influence culture. Is another thing I learned. It's really hard because people are really set in how they work. So to kind of change culture takes time. You can't do it. Um, you can't do it right away. It's going to take time. But there are ways that you can, maybe speed up culture change. Um, having actual practitioners do it in practice rather than just like read it or learn about it, if they're actually applying it directly in their projects, probably will speed up culture change. So.
0: Ali, I want to turn to you. What did you learn from the experience? So again, you're trying to improve cross-collaboration, standardized best practices, and a portion of that included collaboration around improving the security user experience.
2: Yes. So in regards to that, I would say um, I have so many stories. Uh, one story that that uh, stands out is where we were where teams were successful we saw a very clear, defined set of principles Mm. where they were committed to and in a covenant with themselves around those principles. And everyone committed themselves to not only the set of principles, but the leadership that was involved encouraged the set of principles and abided by them. That made a huge difference in how things cascaded down and how folks worked together and collaborated. And one of the things the leadership did where we were successful is encouraged a, a diverse team hmm. where the folks at the table were diverse. It wasn't just a, a small subset of similar thinking, but they had a variety of thinkers in the room and engaged in that, you know, energetic uh, communication or the energetic Uh, debates, if you will, around the requirements and how important it was to have security in the front end, uh, similar to what Jason had alluded to. And uh, as far as an aha moment, I think you had uh, um, um, indicated that uh, aha moments were important. So I did have an aha moment that stands out. And it was when I was leading a project, we were deploying uh, intrusion protection systems across the world. It was around 17 countries, 52 locations. So it was a fairly large global project. And it was around security and it was around user experience. And up until that moment, this was, you know, again, uh, a few years back, up until that moment, the company relied on nested firewall protection and systems engineers that could decipher the machine locks. So we didn't have beautiful dashboards like we have today, and all these magnificent uh, interfaces to look and rely upon. And what we did was back then; it was very difficult to determine false positives because security was after. You know, the the application was built; it was out there, and then they were like, "Wait a minute, it's not secure." It was like an afterthought back then. And I've seen all, over the years security go up in the cycle further and further and further. And now they have a seat at the table with the designer. And one of the discussions that was really mind boggling for me at that moment was I was asking the, uh, the folks at the time, how many hits were we getting? Meaning how many hacks were we getting? You know, I'm thinking you know, a few hundred here and there. And the engineers um, told me, no, it's 250 hits a second. So 250 hits a second the hackers, I was like, wow. So that was an eye opener for me at the time. And now it must be astronomical what, what uh, folks are getting. And just having that sense of security um, at the seat at the table, right in the front, it really starts with positive leadership, knowing that, hey, we need to have all these folks in a room and working together on the requirements.
1: I'd say another big challenge was how do you measure the success of the program Um, you know, what are the, what is the metric of success? Is it attitudinal? Is it behavioral? So we had a survey we put out, which tried to measure those various um, behavioral assets. So, you know, awareness, attitude change within your team and then behavior, you know, are these practices actually being implemented on projects? So that was sort of one, one approach to measuring success, but there were some problems and challenges with, you know, using that, that methodology as is, common with a lot of survey methodologies, very often users don't always, you know, report what they actually do on on surveys. So they may say one thing on a survey, but they actually do something else in reality. So how do you capture that? And I think that all leads into sort of this, you know, mixed method research approach, where, you know, you can't just send out a a large survey, you have to follow it up with, you know, maybe some one on one interviews, or maybe even just also observing teams using it, you actually have to get some real observational, what we call contextual inquiry, and you have to validate it with, with, you know, that kind of research methodology. So kind of mixing the two methods together can kind of help cover up these blind spots. Another, another I'd say, issue with, um, with kind of validating the success of this is we didn't really have, well, we had a baseline condition of people who were not using the practices, but we didn't know whether our assessment tool was a valid measure. So, you know, in the field of psychometrics, whenever you create a new measure, you have to validate its, you know, internal reliability. And also, you know, is it actually measuring what you're saying it's going to measure? So we did have, you know, sort of change data from teams that were not using the practices. So we could compare it to that, but we didn't have any sort of, uh, you know, validity measures as to whether it actually, you know, is that change sufficient to produce like, you know, something that would be, said to be successful of, of the program, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you share um, some specific metrics, like, if, I'm just off the top of my head, like efficiency or, um, you know, reduce time to development, like that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, we had, we had some uh, basically attitudinal measures in terms of how members of the team uh, were thinking about UX and agile so mm-hmm. and how they kind of how they kind of viewed their stakeholders as um, kind of agreeing to these sort of trains of thought. Um, so we had various sections um, around attitudes we had a section around sort of aptitudes like does the team have the right skill set to practice UX um, and agile? And then we also had some, I'm not going to give the specific measures, but we had some measurements, yes, around sort of efficiency measures, like, you know, the team is able to, you know, get through a sprint or, you know, basically have more work done within a, within a sprint. So they're actually getting more done, but it's yeah. not so much always just the, the amount that's done. It's also the quality, like is the quality right. of your product better too. So we had some measures around that as well. Yeah. I think, that's you know, so- when you're comparing story points, it's, it's often not a great, uh, not a great measure of efficiency because you're, you know, no no team has the same kind of, um, you know, measure of story points. It's kind of an apples to oranges thing. So you kind of want to compare it to like a baseline. So generally, if you're comparing, you know, the same team before they use the practices to after, you'd probably get a better comparison of whether they've actually felt like they had improved from the beginning. I'd say there's, you know, definitely more more objective things that you could look at how much you know, work they're actually producing. And then there's also kind of the subjective um, assessment of, you know, do they believe that their team has adopted these practices, that the mindset has changed, that even, you know, they've been able to convince their stakeholders to, you know, adopt this process. Have they been able to shift sort of the culture of the people they work with and are they adopting the skills? So are they actually taking the training? Are they learning these practices that we've been, um, trying to teach them. So I think there's, there are different areas of our assessment that we looked at. So to get a good measure of improvement.
2: Yeah. We wanted to be careful not to have a baseline velocity of their, you know, what they're producing versus comparing against, you know, each other. So we, when we looked at a team, we looked at them individually, basically by, by themselves, and yes. measured, measured against themselves, not against another team, because yes. where I was, uh, yep, yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to um, add on to that. So Jason's 100%. I look, we had a, um, we had a project that I was working on where we had cross, cross divisional teams, it was a very large project. And one team velocity was very slow. I mean, from looking at it, you think, well, they're not getting anything done. However, the way they estimated their points was at such a low margin that one, uh, like two, a two point or three point story was massive lead producing an asset versus another team, which might make that a 13-point story. And that's just the way they did it. That's the way that team worked. They were happy with that. And so we couldn't do apples to apples. It would not have worked out. But so we looked at individually, each team, were they productive? Are they happy? Is stuff coming out? And is it of a high quality? And do they have the skills necessary to complete UX and agile and security practices? Yes or no? And yeah, we had to be careful about that because uh, from someone just looking in from, you know, outside, they might think, oh, look, that team's velocity is 50 and this other team's velocity is five. What's going on there? And so we were trying to um, prevent that, those types of optics from happening. In, in I have our a question analysis.
0: around that because that's really interesting, like in terms of thinking that um, like one size doesn't necessarily fit all and that different teams have different ways of working. and And that might be perfectly fine for them. That helps them optimize the work that they're doing. When you were working on this project and you talked about standardizing best practices, how did you think about or how did you go about fostering that standardization without imposing too strict of guidelines or frameworks or best practices that would perhaps stifle how that team worked together?
2: Yeah, we had a definite set of principles that were broad in scope, yet definitive in nature. For example, one of them was blameless, 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 right? They're to operate and empower oneself and the team to the point where you feel you're comfortable producing high quality, whatever that looks like. And the business value is intact. And then the leadership says, yes, I agree. It's, it's kind of like that. That, that would be an yeah. exam, example of one, one principle, a blameless organization. Yeah.
0: I wanna just summarize what I've heard from you so far. And then I wanna talk about security, the security user experience a little bit more specifically. Um, so what you both talked about is uh, changing culture is hard. I think that's a great takeaway. Uh, A set of principles can be kind of your guiding light. Like Allie just talked about that too. Um, Making sure that they are specific and actionable, but still broad enough that the teams feel like they work for them and aren't necessarily stifling how they want to work. Integrating security as part of the overall process and not separating it. That, That was something that I thought a lot about in my book and how I thought about human-centered design, you know I ended up calling it human-centered security, but really it's, it's human-centered design apply and incorporating security as part of it. And it sounds like that's exactly what you are advocating as well. It's, it's not something that needs to be off to the side or something that you do separately. It's actually part of your overall design process. And the earlier that you integrate it, the better. Uh, the other thing that you talked about was that it's, it's difficult to define success metrics. And in this case, you know, you're thinking about the success metrics of improving that cross collaboration, you know, but it's also difficult to define success metrics on like, did this actually improve security outcomes? Did the, the design decision we make actually improve security outcomes? Um, you know, that's difficult to measure as well. So, um, I'm curious if you have any, anything to add to that or anything that you want to call out to, to people listening to the podcast.
2: I, yeah, I would say don't give up. You know, don't give up. And as long as there are problems to solve, we have something to do. And I feel like this, as things get more and more complicated and generative AI is uh, becoming more interwoven in how we see UX design, and security and even agile methodologies i i think there's going to be a lot more interesting problems to solve and perhaps we can look at ways that we can improve things
1: yeah i agree i mean i think as you know technology evolves and things get more and more sophisticated and complicated with generative ai and you know all these L, large language models you know it 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 invites additional security issues that or risks that can that can arise but i still think that you can still achieve that balance of having you know, good user experience with good security. You know, there's often the myth that you're always trading one off for the other, but it's not always true. There are ways of baking it in so you can get you know, strong security and still have a good experience for your user. Um, I think it can be achieved, but I think the challenges are going to get greater as the technology gets more sophisticated. There's going to be way more considerations and challenges that come up, come up
0: what sort of advice can you give to UX teams about the security user experience that they might not have thought about before?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, that it's really important that, you know, security is considered, especially now um, that, you know, AI is getting much smarter and, you know, there's much more access to your personal information. It's probably one of the most critical things that you need to consider in your overall experience and, you know, UX people should not just always be thinking about the experience, they should be thinking about all these UX or all these security related issues, and also how it impacts the UX, but also how does the UX impact the security. Mm-hmm. So they, they kind of work in tandem and what they each impact each other. So when you're designing an experience, um, you need to think about how it's going to impact your, your security as well, in terms of how you design the interface and, and the process and the workflow you need to always think about how it's impacting security uh, related issues. So
0: those are
1: always important to consider.
0: Allie, I know you had talked at the beginning of our call about um, that you had some thoughts around if UX folks are thinking to themselves, like, I'm just a UX designer, I'm just a UX researcher, what do I have to contribute to? Security, right? Like, what sort of skills do I have? I don't. I don't know anything about security. What sort of things
2: would you tell them? Diversify your skill set. So, as a UX practitioner interested in security, broaden your expertise in both disciplines. You know, understand the fundamentals of UX design, uh, as well as information architecture and usability. But also dive into security principles. Maybe some threat modeling risk assessment, things like that. And uh, keep in mind generative AI, wherever you're looking at these things, I would say stay informed of industry trends, you know, read, read those articles, listen to Heidi's podcast. (laughs) Um,
1: Read read Heidi's book. That's (laughs) a good foundation. Definitely a good foundation. Yeah. I think just reading, I mean, you know, if you have no background in security, the best thing to do is just read about it. And there's also a lot on security and UX. I mean, there are, you know, various uh, information sources. You can even read about how they impact each other.
2: Yes, absolutely agree. Uh, Emerging technologies, you know, articles, new design patterns, um, new threats that are coming out, of course, privacy, data privacy. And then, you know, look for ways to bridge the gap between UX and security. You might come up with the next big thing, you might be that person that's bridging the gap and advocating for user-centered security practices and reach out and find some security experts, if you can, in your network. And that brings me to network, network, you know, connect with professionals, uh, LinkedIn. There's some other great um, avenues for that. Attend the meetups, you know, join online forums, participate in any kind of discussion, um, wherever the intersection of UX and security are, and then seek world real world exp experience. Yeah, I think that's the skills. greatest
1: value is is you know interviewing or talking to subject matter experts. You can just learn so much from a short conversation. Yep.
2: yep, yep, absolutely. And volunteer for projects. You know, wherever you are, whether that's work or wherever you live, work and and play. You know, volunteer. Sometimes that might lead to, you never know where it's going to lead. But don't. In other words, say yes you know, say yes, practical yeah. experience will strengthen your skills and also demonstrate your willingness and ability to navigate the challenges, you know, rise to the challenge.
0: can't think of really any job that I've had that there wasn't some aspect of the security user experience. Now, yes, I worked for cybersecurity companies where like security was the whole focus, but I've also worked for other organizations where maybe it wasn't the Soul focus, but it still, you know, mm-hmm. wove its way into different conversations in terms of, wow, like this seems like a violation of privacy, or I think users are going to balk at us asking for this information, or this signup flow doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, or this error message doesn't make a whole lot of sense that's related to security or privacy, or I know that our users aren't going to do this. I can't tell you how many times I've had those conversations and the the biggest learning experiences have just been talking to engineers and to information security team and, you know, to legal teams about why, like, why is it that way? And I'm sure, you know, both you, uh, Jason and Allie are, are proponents of just asking questions and just trying to learn as much as possible about why, like, why is it this way? Does it have to be this way? Right. Like, I think that's probably uh, one of the biggest takeaways I had is just being like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. And maybe I, maybe I I can, as you said, Allie, like maybe designers can can come up with that next big thing right. with it's the good. help of their cross-disciplinary team.
2: Yes, it's good to ask those questions. And I always think of uh, when I'm talking to my mentees, you know, I talk to them about this, the the fable Emperor's the Emperor's New Clothes. And I'm like, yeah, be that person in the parade and question, ask, you know, what am I really seeing? Is this, (laughs) is this necessary? (laughs) Ask the question, it's okay to be curious and, and be that person, you know, be brave, have the courage to ask the questions.
0: I know, uh, Jason, that you talked a little bit about mixed methods and using data science. How does that, how is that helpful in improving the security user experience
1: i would say mixed methods are valuable because you want to kind of look at the problem from different vantage points so when you talk about mixed when we talk about mixed methods we talk about harnessing data you know qualitative data so you know things that will quali- qualify things so what are people actually saying about you know an application which is really answering a lot of like the why questions and rationales for how people think and do things, but we also want to get, you know, sort of quantitative data so we can kind of validate various things. We also want to look at, um, you know, behavioral versus attitudinal. So sometimes what people say, you know, in an attitudinal study um, may be different from what they actually do. So it's important to get those sort of user metrics to validate what they're saying with what they're doing. And I think that, you know, kind of holds true a lot for security, you know, people may say that they're adopting these practices and using them, but are they actually doing it? You know, and actually, how does that translate into the value of your product? So, you know, have there been fewer incidents over a year? Can you quantify that? Or are you just having people tell you that they feel that, you know, the risks have gone down and they've had fewer incidents because of it. I think it's important to kind of link the two together and cover up those gaps. So if you only do one, you're going to get some, some gaps in the method, but if you cover up that method with, sort of a, a, you know, a parallel method, but in a different, in a different stream. So if you just mean quantitative, you also do a qualitative assessment or you do something attitudinal If have to cover it up with a behavioral um, assessment, you can cover up those gaps and you get a much more thorough perspective of research. So you can answer a lot more questions. So that's really the value of mixing methods together. Um, you're just validating different vantage points and it's just a stronger, stronger methodology. You leave a lot of questions, fewer questions that are unanswered.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of misunderstanding and an incomplete understanding when it comes to the security user experience. So sometimes people, um, you know, hold on to what what might be best practices from ten years ago, or they kind of haven't adapted their their security hygiene or they believe something, but it's not like a complete understanding of how the mechanism actually works. So they kind of apply it in the wrong way. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance to that.
1: I agree. And if you really want to change culture, I think you have to have that deeper level understanding. People have to have that deeper level understanding of why they're actually doing something and how it's improving their security. If they don't understand why they're doing it, it's going to be hard to change the culture to think that way. They're not going to want to do it long-term.
0: Isn't a question that I post in my my guide here. So I'm just going to throw you for a loop. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing UX practitioners when it comes to the security user experience?
1: I think one of the biggest yeah. challenges, if I can jump in is that, yeah. you know, you're asking, you know, what is the biggest challenge of, of UX practitioners with security? I would say um, having good security with good UX and not just focusing on the UX by figuring out how you can still have good UX and have strong security. How do you achieve that balance? I think is is certainly still a challenge.
0: Yeah, that was one of my takeaways in writing the book too, is that it's it is it's not perfection. It's not a perfect, seamless, frictionless user experience. And it's not, it's probably not absolute you know, perfection doesn't exist in security anyway. So any security practitioner will tell you that. It just doesn't, it's not achievable. No. So, so I, I like how you, you know, you pose it. It's a, it's a balancing act. It's, there are trade-offs on both sides. Yes. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, if you just wanted to lock information in a safe and throw away the key, like that's probably the most secure thing to do, but like then no one can benefit from it. Obviously
1: not. <laughs> And I'd say another big challenge is just keeping up with the pace of, yeah. of security risks that arise as technology changes so quickly. The landscape is changing very quickly and there's new risks being introduced every day. So as a UX practitioner, they need to be able to keep up with you know all the changes in security and integrate that into their, you know, UX, into their user experience. So I think that's a big challenge.
0: Well, that's a great, uh, great segue to my last question, which is where do you think this security user experience or even information security in general is going? Talked, both you and Allie um, talked about generative AI. I'm curious if, uh, if that's kind of your your biggest concern and, and that's where you think it's going. Like, wh- what do you think is next?
1: Yeah, I'll take this one and then I'll let Ali finish. So I think certainly, you know, generative AI and LLMs, I think there's a lot of risks around personal information, you know, what is actually credible information and what is not, you know, this technology has the ability to hallucinate. So how does a, a user tell the difference between what is actually true? What is the source mm-hmm. of truth and what is actually something that is, you know, not true or made up even, you know, there's a lot of things with deep fakes now. So I think impersonation, deep fakes, I think the world is going to, be changing in the sense that the biggest risk is going to be able to determine for a user what is actually real and what is not real i think Mm -hmm. that is a big you know just risk to the user but also a risk to security in terms of impersonation so i think there's a lot of challenges ahead there's some good things that coming out of this as well but i think there's a lot of challenges and threats to people as well you know a lot of uh, nefarious uses that can be that can come out of this technology so
0: what about you, Allie? What, uh, where do you think the security user experience is going? What sort of things were you?
2: So I'm not so much worried, but I'm I'm kind of excited about it. I, and I try to not overlook the challenges and you know the, the negative aspect, but I feel like there's so much positivity out there. If we could just harness that, focus on that, I feel like the worrying would work itself out but maybe that's optimistic. Um, I do think that generative AI is making a tremendous impact. Oh my gosh, I've never seen something move so fast through the world in tech. Um, And I feel like prompt engineering, that whole aspect of prompt engineering, I'm really excited about that aspect. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, we have the combination of art and science And I haven't seen this in a few decades where art and science is coming together for a new technology. And I feel like that's an opportunity for those that are interested in, you know, being creative. There's actually a creative aspect of freedom right now for tech professionals where art and science are joined in prompt engineering and generative AI. And I know security, maybe even the aspect of security offers itself some creativity as well. Like maybe we can, we can, you know, have some remediation or even mitigation against those bad actors as they're coming to take our identity and, and do all these nefarious things. But I feel like we have some quantum resistance, if you will, to all the algorithms that are out there using technology, you know, and we can fight it. Basically, it's like I feel like it's a battle a little bit. Uh, a battle. Security seems like a battle because I remember when I worked in security at a previous company, it was always a leapfrog. You know, Every day, almost every week, we leapfrog over the, we got it. Okay, we fixed it. Okay, here comes another one. Denial of service. We fixed it. Okay, here's another one and another one and another one. (laughs) It was like constant, constant battle. And it's all going on behind the scenes. And sometimes a lot of folks aren't even aware, but I feel like there's a lot of promise with Gen AI, AI, maybe even prompt engineering, and some of the foundational models. And I agree with Jason that we need to really have some data governance around what Gen Gen AI gives us back, meaning how do we know that the inputs that we give and the outputs that we receive are correct?
0: Well, thank you both so much. It has been a pleasure talking to you and appreciate you taking the time to be on
2: the podcast.
1: And thank you so much for having us on. We really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, it was so much fun. Thank you.